So hello and welcome. Happy Friday. Today's Friday, March the 24th, and this is Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers, episode number 201. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this is the way to be. I'm really glad that you're here. I finally got back. I was in uh, West Virginia last weekend for the Mountaineer Beekeepers uh, Conference. So great if you're if you were there and we met. Thank you for saying hello. I had a good time and uh, made a lot of good connections there and met people that I've only known kind of through Facebook and uh, YouTube. And uh, it was great. Lots of good presentations. Nice conference all the way around. So anyway, how cold is it outside right now? 38 degrees Fahrenheit. That is three degrees Celsius. And the wind speeds are at two miles an hour, so it's actually not terrible out there. And yeah, because the sun is shining, the bees are flying. And my tests are ongoing. So remember, I'm comparing dry pollen substitute to see what the bees are on. And we have uh, AP23 out there and uh, Man Lakes Ultra Bee Dry Pollen Sub. Why? Because I bought that before I knew that AP23 was slugging it out with Mega Bee from Better Bee. You see? That's how it's going. So relative humidity, 71%. No rain on the way. At least not today, but tomorrow, overnight, rain's coming. And the weather's going to get nice and warm. It's going to get 60 degrees, according to the weather people, but uh, what's coming with it? Heavy wind and rain, of course. Some of you may be wondering, uh, did you win the 200th episode contest? And for those of you who entered and you're waiting to see, there are seven winners and they get announced at the end of today's uh, Q&A. So you're gonna have to wait. No jumping ahead. If you jump ahead and you look at the end right now because you want to see if you won, you jinx yourself. You automatically don't win if you if you speed up and uh, cheat like that. You need to go through this whole Q&A today first. And uh, if you want to know what we're going to talk about, please look down in the video description. Also, if you want to just see the names of the winners, you can also go to the video description and go all the way to the very bottom and you're going to see their names there. Maybe it's your name. Now what happens to the 200th episode gear? By the way, the most popular request for those who entered the contest was the coffee cup. The 200th episode coffee cup. That was kind of cool. And which color was the favorite? Black. There's two listings. One with all black and the other one you had different colors to choose from. Black's the favorite, coffee cup's the favorite. Number two was a 32-ounce stainless steel water bottle. By the way, that's the most expensive one. I thought people would just jump on that and say, I want that water bottle, but they didn't. And uh, that's my favorite, the water bottle. So anyway, you want to see who the winners are, you can go ahead and look down in the video description and see, along with that, what we're going to talk about today and some links that will help you out 
uh, with some of the topics today, maybe. So the questions that we're going to answer, and by the way, you might be wondering, Fred, if you were given a presentation last Friday down at the West Virginia Conference, how did your Q&A come up at 4 o'clock? Well, that's because I preloaded it. See, it was, it was not true. It was not in real time. I was actually in West Virginia fellowshipping with beekeepers from all over the place. If you want to know how you can submit your own question, please also follow the link in the video description, which takes you to my website, which is thewaytobe.org. And there's a page there, thewaytobe.org, and you can click on that. Also, you might be wondering if you could just listen to this instead of looking at it. You know, like a podcast on Podbean under the title, The Way to Be. So yeah, you can. You can listen with your Beats headphones or whatever you have. Jump right into it. First question comes from TJ from Phoenix, Phoenixville, PA. Did my first inspection of my hives of the spring to see what condition they were in and who made it. Today, when it hit 65 degrees Fahrenheit, one of my hives had a good population of bees covering six frames. But, to my surprise, had drone brood raised up from worker brood cells as if there was a drone laying queen. But I found none, and the pattern was very spotty, as if there was potentially a laying worker. I shook out all the frames 30 yards away and put them back. The bees flew back, and I added two frames of brood and eggs and nurse bees from a very strong hive. My question is, do you think they can make a successfully mated queen this early in Southeast PA? Or should I order a queen from down south, and will they even accept her if I did? So that's a pickle, but I agree. It sounds like laying workers, not so much a laying queen. And the reason I say that is because the brood pattern was spotty, and uh, they were laying in the worker cells. Queens that are laying, uh, drone laying queens, tend to still use drone comb for that. So it's really interesting. I'm not saying she can't lay drones in the worker cells, but the spotty pattern and other descriptions and the fact that you couldn't find the queen tells me you likely had a laying worker. So some of you may be wondering why the hooey would that person pull out the frames and shake them 30 yards away and then put the hive back together and let everybody fly back. What about those young nurse bees? Would they still make it back to the hive after that? Well, the good news is there aren't any young nurse bees left because, uh, look, it's been without brood. It's been without a queen. And whoever's laying is laying drones. So we don't have to worry about the nurse bees not being able to find their way back. And why did you shake them out on the ground? What does that do? Well, the thought is that laying workers, just like a laying queen, would be too heavy. And they'd be grounded. And of course, those that are not grounded and not laying, so they're not laying workers, would therefore be light enough physically to fly back to the hive. So that's actually kind of a good practice if you want to shake them out. Now here's the other part. Adding in brood, which is good because we're going to boost their numbers because they're definitely in decline with only drones. And for those who don't know, the drones are the males. What's going to happen? Um, they will attempt to produce queens from the eggs that you put in there because they're queenless. So the good news is by putting in a frame of brood and hopefully there's open brood and it sounds like there is because there's eggs present so they can make emergency queen cells. Uh, the pheromones there would also help suppress the laying workers if they still exist in the hive after the shaking out and all that stuff. 
What would I do personally? Because that's what we're talking about now. Now, I'm not in Southeast PA, so I don't really know what the climate's like there, but I think they're probably warmer than we are based on the fact that they've already had 65 degree Fahrenheit weather. But what I would look for if I was counting on them to, you know, requeen themselves, how many drones are around in general? I mean, we have a laying worker situation. Those aren't great drones. In fact, those drones are subpar. They're smaller, they're not as capable, and probably we don't really want them. So what you want to do is look around at your other hives uh, in the area and see if drone numbers are up yet. I'm going to just take a guess that they're probably not. So what would I do? If I knew somebody that had laying workers of genetics that I like and want, most of the people that sell packages and queens and things like that don't have them yet. But the good news is some queen breeders bank their queens through winter. Some queen breeders have their queens ready to go before drones are ready to go. So you could maybe work something out with them. But if you have drones, you know, you can let nature take its course and see if they're going to mate and see what happens. Um, so probably not giving a very solid answer, but I would personally, if I knew somebody that had queens that were productive, I would probably work something out, get a queen, install the queen right away because her pheromone shuts down, of course, laying workers in partnership with the fact that you added a frame of brood that was open with new brood pheromone, which also helps suppress laying workers. So those are the options. That's what I would do. Interesting management there, by the way. I think it was fun to shake out those uh, laying workers and get rid of them so they're not hostile and so their pheromone can go away. Question number two comes from Aubrey in Cape Town, South Africa. Does it matter where the entrance is on a single Langstroth box, small entrance left, right, or in the middle? Do the bees decide where they want to brood and go accordingly? Thanks in advance. Okay, that's a really good question, and it's one that I enjoy answering, and here's why. Um, I, I prefer that the entrance be in the center of your landing board, and that's because, uh, you know, the bees are landing on either side of it, come and go, but here's the thing. It's central to the hive, and most tree cavities, if that's kind of what we're thinking about, even though, you know, our beehives are nothing like a tree cavity, however... They have a center just by nature, the fact that the, the cavity is a cylinder, roughly. Um, any hole going into that would be centered. So, I like that. But here's the thing, more important, let's say you wanted to start it. If you wanted to put it off to the side, I would put my entrance to the eastern side. Uh, the rising sun side. Okay. Now, the other part of that is, um, I'm a big fan of once you set up an entrance and you establish if it's center, off center, whatever you decide to do, it's best to stay consistent with that, and here's why. When the bees are arranging their brood, and they do build burr comb, and they do modify the brood box quite a bit with their comb, and uh, they're planning around how they're circulating air through the hive. And for those of you who've been watching me for a while, know that I'm now at the point where I'm only using single entrances, and I do not use upper venting at all. And what happens here is then the bees are very efficient at moving air around inside the hive. So if you play musical entrances on your beehives, some people uh, have the entrance reducer that'll flip like it has a really wide opening for summertime and then they flip it and it has a narrow opening for wintertime. But where's the narrow opening? It's off to the side. So late in the year when the temperatures are cooling down, what do they do? 
They changed how the bees are managing their airflow and they shifted the entrance off to the side. So now they do that. Is it the end of the world? No, but it definitely fights the bees when it comes to the efficiency and the system that they've set up up until that point. Because it doesn't just deal with the air coming through right there, but it's even up in your second box, which where I live, I always have two boxes going into winter unless it's a late season swarm or something like that. But you'll really see the arrangement that they've set up between the frames and what's going on up into the next box when it's uh, when, it, when we talk about directing airflow and even the physical traffic of the bees through there. They set it up based on where the entrance is. I also don't put in large entrances. So up to three inches wide, three eighths of an inch in height, and you don't need a mouse guard that way. And so, big fan, keep it in the center and, and leave it there. If you start off to the side, leave it there. So that's my recommendation, makes it easier on the bees. Question number three comes from Lee from Fisher, Illinois. And uh, says, this is a episode 201 question. That's handy, because we're on episode 201 right this minute. I have a three-layer bee suit that is very, very nasty, all in caps, by the way. What is the best way to clean them and what with? I don't dare throw it in the wife's washer. I've been married 48 years. Don't want to be run off now. Thanks. Okay, I have a fix for you. And there is no shortage of super dirty bee suits out there. You know what I did? You know, I don't know if it's been a couple of years or whatever. This, by the way, you can get this at any grocery store, even Home Depot and places like that. They have a cleaning aisle. This is Tide free and gentle, free of dyes and perfumes and so on. Why is that important? Because you don't want your bee suit to smell like a perfume. Uh, when you go out to tend to your bees, they might have a reaction to it. They might dislike the way you're smelling. So scent free is key. And here's the thing, I learned about this from Terry from Guardian Bee Apparel. So I figured if he owns a company that sells bee suits and he's got the final word in my opinion on how to clean them. So free and gentle. Now here's the thing, keep it out of your dish, out of not your dishwasher, don't get me started. When I was on the ship, I'm gonna sideline here a little bit. Many of you don't know that I used to be an examiner in the Navy and I had the chem lab was one of my areas under my control, the non-destructive testing and inspection lab. And we had the chemistry lab where we had liquid nitrogen and we had spectro analysis and everything else. But we also had a sanitization system and I would catch those sailors in there doing their laundry in the sanitizing dishwasher at your expense, taxpayers. So I shut that down. I'm just letting you know. But here's the thing. You could actually wash things in your dishwasher. I don't recommend it. So here's the other part, uh, you can get a tote and I recommend those big Rubbermaid totes and I have them. They're the ones that you would put like, let's say you had a pickup truck and it looks like one of those big tool bins that goes in the back of your truck right behind that rear window. And uh, they're heavy duty. So you buy them once, you can use them for a lot of things and here's what I recommend you use it for, wash your bee suit in there. So you can lay out, you can use cold water. There's a cold water method. You soak your suit in there and it's a hand wash. You can also put your veil in there because most manufacturers, including Guardian Bee Apparel, recommend that you wash your veil uh, separate so that you hand wash it and you can actually put your bee suit 
in your washing machine on a gentle cycle, but why not just do it all right in a big Rubbermaid tote? Mix it up, put it in there, wash everything, all your rags, all the stuff that you need to clean up in there, soak it, and then put it out on the line, let it air dry, and you're back in business. I think that's the best. So that's what I recommend. You can put it on the line, and you can use uh, a solar dryer, so it's free. So, you know, your solar-powered uh, clothing dryer is, uh, is also called a clothesline. So, use that. I think it's the way to go. Question number four comes from Philip, Couple, Texas. I had a problem with crystallized honey in the frames last fall. The bees have cleaned out a lot of it, but they aren't getting all the crystals. My question is, will these crystal residue get cleaned out in the hive before the bees store nectar or will it remain and possibly serve as a catalyst to cause spring honey to crystallize thank you okay here's what i do and this is really simple when you're inspecting your hives for spring the old honey by the way they don't touch uh, so when new nectar and everything starts coming in they bring in the new and they consume the new first and then if they ran out of all of that then they would move on to the other stuff but I think what we're describing is if you look in the cells and it looks like little white globs kind of crystallized and that can be left over, especially if you fed with heavy sugar syrup going into fall. Some of that is still there. Here's what I recommend. Put them out uh, for open feeding and well away from your apiary. If that doesn't suit you and you're not allowed to open feed wherever you live, then I highly recommend you lay out your garden hose and I have a big long garden hose. Mine's about 200 feet. And uh, if you lay that out on a nice sunny day, it turns into hot water. Now you don't want it to be so hot that it melts your wax, but that would be super hot. But hot water in the garden hose from the sun. So once again, a solar heater. Uh, and then you turn on your water and you rinse it out and uh, then you air dry it and you put it right back in with your bees. So you can have the bees clean it if that suits you. If it doesn't, hot water from your hose, rinse it all out because it is likely that your bees could leave that there. Or worse, you don't really want that to be in a honey super that you're later going to draw off and uh, bottle for your friends or for yourself. So it's best, I think, to clean it out. Let the bees clean it or you clean it and then put it in once it's dry. Question number five comes from Mike. Lower Hudson Valley, New York. Have you ever used a Russian scion in your apiary? I'm very interested in all options for swarm management and would love to have your thoughts on the above. Okay, well, a Russian scion, if you Google it or if you look it up on YouTube, and I recommend you do. I don't really have a shout out for a YouTube channel today, but uh, it works and here's why, uh, whatever you're going to call it. We all know that once the first couple of swarms take off and uh, they bivouac on a tree, and by the way, I would like to say this, and uh, I did collaborate with a lot of scientists and PhD level bee researchers this past weekend. And uh, when you're seeing bees bivouacked on a tree near your apiary, 99.9% .9 chance those are your bees anyway. So those are your bees. And I tried to ask another gentleman about uh, rescuing swarms, and I got an answer that basically let me know that I shouldn't be asking that question. So moving on, I do collect swarms, and I like that bivouac location. And wouldn't it be great if we could redirect them to a bivouac spot that's accessible to us? And that's where the Russian scion comes in. 
And if I'm saying that wrong, I'm sorry, it's S-C-I-O-N. I'm just guessing it's Scion. But what happens is people put together, it could be old frames from your beehive, old brood frames and things like that. And you can melt the wax off of them and just let the wax melt and drip all over the wood. And you create a shelter. So in other words, when it rains, it doesn't make this device wet. So it can look like, you know, the arm of a power line, let's say the old wooden crossbar. And you put what looks to me like a, a boxing, you know, if you have the speed bag up and it's that speed bag uh, bounce surface there, that it would be hooked up underneath. So they nail pieces of wood to that. And then they put beeswax and stuff all over that piece of wood. And that smells good to bees. Bees know that bees have been there before, and that's what they like to do. So where they light and gather, uh, they're likely to do it again. So in the spring, we have a chance because all the pheromones that were left on their favorite branches to bivouac on, uh, that scent has now gone away. So we have some options on how to get a branch to smell good to bees so that they'll light on it when they're in swarm mode. And the cyan, it seems like it would work. So if you wanna build something, Google that, YouTube it, and go look at them and see what people have done, and it's easy to do. But what I like to do is I pick a tree branch that's about eye level, because that's what I like. It's on a tree, and I think they actively seek out tree branches. And uh, instinctively, they tend to go up kind of high because they want to be protected. But I've discovered that we can redirect them. So without putting wax and uh, propolis and things like that all over pieces of wood and then putting those together underneath the shelter, we can pick a tree branch and use what, if you've been watching me, you know is now my favorite thing to manipulate the influencers in the bivouac, and that is QMP, Queen Mandibular Pheromone, sold as Temp Queen. And uh, I zip tie that to a branch. And then someone else asked me, how long does that last? And it really doesn't matter how long it lasts. And here's why. Because when you put it out there, when you start to realize that there's going to be some swarming going on, we want to catch them in their bivouac location. Uh, that's your best opportunity. So let's put that under our control. Pick a branch that could support several pounds. Don't put on a little flimsy, light, you know, spruce branch that will bend right to the ground when bees start to cluster on it. Have a nice steady one. And if you can't find one that's strong enough, you can take shoestrings and tie this branch to the branch above it, that branch to the branch above that, and so on. And we kind of create a web that is strong. And then you zip tie your QMP noodle to that. Now you can get some stray bees attached to it. So be ready for that too. You can get bees to just collect on it because they don't know where to go and they came across a pheromone stream. Even though it's a synthetic pheromone, they just instinctively gather there. And that's not the end of the world either because they start to leave a residue of pheromone on the branch. And then when you do get bees that fly out and they're swarming, guess what branch you're gonna be on? This worked like magic last year, and I'm late to the game. I've been keeping bees since 2006, and I just figured that out last year. And so I plan to do a lot more manipulation with QMP. Cost $5, it's from Better Bee, you get two of them, you keep them in the freezer, and when I see a swarm actively landing on a tree branch, I run into the house, I go to the freezer and uh, get my QMP noodle and run out there and zip tie it on there and watch the bees change their mind and uh, do everything I want them to do. So if it doesn't work, ignore everything I just said, but it's gonna work. The Scion method works 
and uh, picking a branch that's in a somewhat sheltered location, but it's also a place where bees might choose on a tree that they're already choosing is a huge benefit. Just you pick the branch that you want them to go on. Try it. You'll like it. It's going to work. Question number six comes from Yvonne in Abington, Maryland. What can I do about a hive that had a fire drill swarm? Went back in yesterday when it was warm, and now we're in for a cold snap. I hate to open the main hive in the cold to look for the queen and queen cells, and I'm not sure a small split would be warm enough. If only we had waited two more weeks. This is still March, and uh, the March lion is not yet a lamb. That's interesting. Okay, so this is in Abington, Maryland. Now here's what I want to consider. Let's consider all potentials. You're right. If they're doing fire drills and they're making preparations to go, for those of you who don't know, fire drills uh, are often when queen, new queen production is underway. So they're making queen cells, swarm cells. Those are the best. Let's say they're doing that. And uh, so they're making preparations to depart. In fact, they might even intend to depart and then just change your mind. Why? Because the queen doesn't leave. Why wouldn't the queen leave? Well, before the queen leaves, they put her on a diet and they chase her around for a while. They also start preventing her from producing eggs. And uh, so she needs to be lighter so that she can fly. So some of the thinking is maybe they're doing fire drills because they want her to go now, but she hasn't shed enough weight yet to do it. So she can't handle the flight. Uh, the other thing I'd like you to consider as a potential is that when did this happen? In other words, the very first warm days we get, I mean, right now it's not very warm here where I am, but some bees are flying. Uh, when we get a really warm day, it can seem like fire drills are going on at a lot of different hives. And what does that sound like? It sounds like a swarm because hundreds, if not thousands of bees hover in front of the hive. Here's what I want you to look for behavior in flight. And the reason I say that is it might not be a fire drill at all. These could be orientation flights from new bees that are having their first opportunity to go outside and fly. And the difference will be orientation flights. Uh, they'll zigzag in a figure eight. They'll be looking around. It's very interesting. So if they're in front of the hive and they're doing a figure eight and they're kind of looking at their environment and they're doing that for a little bit and they move a little bit away from the hive and then they move closer to the hive and then eventually they land on it and then eventually they go in, that's an orientation flight. Now, if they fly out and they hover in front of the hive and they stare at the entrance and you see groups of them zipping back in and coming back out and hovering in front of the hive staring at the entrance while they're hovering in front of the hive and then going on the landing board and going back in like impatient people wanting to go shopping but somebody is taking too long to get dressed and get ready to go. That is a fire drill. So those are distinctive. If you go out and watch them, look at their behavior. Are these bees looking around as if, oh, this is my neighborhood. Oh, this is where I live. That is an orientation. That little serpentine, the figure eight is the giveaway. And then some of them now... If they're oriented and they're heading out on their first flights, now the behavior is a corkscrew flight pattern. Those that are a little older, they corkscrew up into the air, then off they go in some direction to get a resource like, I don't know, AP23 or Mega Bee or, you know, Ultra Bee Dry Pollen Sub or Nectar, whatever they're going after. Those are the distinctive flight patterns. So I suggest watching for that. And I agree, if the weather's really cold and uh, the chances of a small 
nuke or something like that are low for their survival because wherever you put them they're going to have to survive and they know that too that's why i'm i'm thinking if the weather's really bad they might stick around longer than you think bees can even prolong the emergence of a queen from a queen cell sometimes the queen will be cutting herself out of a queen cell and you know what the workers will be doing sealing her right back up and keeping her in there longer than she should be so they have some tricks up their sleeves when it comes to the retinue of the queen and preventing her from emerging. They also do that when they have demonstrative favoritism for another queen that's in her cell. Uh, or she's trying to emerge and the other queen hasn't left yet. They tend to hold them back. So they show preference for one another. They can help one out. They can keep one in. They can seal them back up. It's like a nightmare for the queen that's trying to get out. And every time she chooses through her cocoon and tries to get that wax cap off, they're making a new one right on top of it. Very interesting uh, that the bees do have really definite ideas on what they want to do with the hive. But watch for those patterns and let us know what you see. I think it's really cool to see what's going on. We've had orientation flights going on a lot recently. Whenever it hit 50, for example, and it was sunny, just huge clusters in front of the hives, especially my horizontal hives. I am looking forward to good things there. So, Question number seven comes from Heidi in Big Fork, Montana. Have a question if you think it would be relevant to talk about. At a meeting, someone mentioned the bees may have a difficult time jumping the gap between the brood and the super in winter. Moving only a millimeter a day, they may not jump that extra space to the frames above them. I found this intriguing and wanted to know if you have any thoughts on it. Also, we have a pygmy shrew this year, and I reduced the entrance to three-eighths and successfully watched him struggle. So even the pygmy shrew can't get through that three-eighths inch opening. That's why it gets reinforced over and over again. No need for a mouse guard, three-eighths of an inch, plenty of room for a bee. Okay, let's move on to this. So we're talking about the bottom box, the next box up. Let's just take this for an example. There's a gap, right? Usually it's bee space. So we're going from the top of the frame that's down below, which is where your brood is and everything, and then winter stores are up above, and uh, that's honey-capped. So this will be two deeps. These are both deep frames, right? And then there's a gap here, and they also put bridge comb in here, and they connect these together. So, but if we did inspections and we pulled it apart at the end of the year, and most beekeepers use their hive tool and scrape off the burr comb on the bottom of this, they want to make sure things fit well, so they scrape off the burr comb on the top of that. But I think uh, some terms are being confused on this one, and that is that one millimeter a day. One millimeter a day is a cluster, the travel, and by the way, it was DeLayens that came out with that, who developed the DeLayens hive. That they move as a cluster up over food resources at a rate of one millimeter a day over capped honey. Now, does that mean that if they hit a bridge that's three-eighths of an inch, would the cluster get to that point and go, oh man, there's a, there's a gap right there we can't move more than a millimeter, and so we couldn't bridge the gap? Sure they will. They'll go right over it, they'll move like a mass, and they'll move right over that, right on up to the resources that are above them. If uh, the frames above them don't have resources on them, they shouldn't be there at all in wintertime. 
So no, that gap is zero problem. And how do we know that? Because they do it every year. They migrate as a group and you can see what the consumption path was when you're doing your spring inspections. You can see where the brood was down below. You can see as they clustered up and the brood was not being produced anymore. Uh, when you get into early winter and then they start brooding up again, the brood follows the cluster. And this is also where the numbers in the hive are critical because we need enough bees in there to access resources, the food and stuff. And at the same time, enough bees to keep the brood covered even when it's cold outside so they can maintain that 94 to 97 degree temperature range so that the brood does not get chilled and die. And that's why when we have tiny clusters in there, little ones that only stick to like one frame, we have a real problem because they're trying to feed themselves and keep themselves warm. That's the full task. They cannot spread out and also provide heat and protection for brood. And that's why when they get to that point, they just can't keep their brood warm and they just keep shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and shrinking but they can cover that easily. I love the uh, pygmy shrew story because the pygmy shrew is the smallest mammal. And if a pygmy shrew can't get through that three inch opening, we're on to something. So make three eighths inch openings for your entrance reducers and keep them that way all the time. There's no reason to change it. You can change the width. So it's their tiny skulls that can't get through that. So question number eight comes from Dahlia. In Cork, Ireland, in episode 165, you said that smoke has a negative impact on the bees. You said that you use sugar syrup with honeybee healthy on hot days. Would you use that in a wet climate like Ireland? I'm afraid to add water to the hive that the bees can't manage. Okay, um, so for me, it's more temperature restrictive than it is humidity and because uh, if the bees are warm enough uh, and uh, things are nice and hot like when it's if it's in the high 80s or the 90s and that's before you add sunshine to it I guess in Ireland in this part you don't sound like you have a lot of sunshine but um, that's why when you smoke them on a really hot day it just it bothers me to do it I don't want to smoke the bees and that's why I like to do one-to-one -one sugar syrup. It's the light sugar syrup. And the reason is because it's easy for them to clean it off. It doesn't threaten or put the bees in jeopardy. It won't block their, block their spiracles or interrupt their breathing or any of that. And it's easy for them to clean up. So the thing of it is, uh, and I put the honeybee healthy in there because it creates a familiar scent. And it's been my experience that uh, when I lightly spray them, you're not soaking them down. You know, they... If, if the minute you put a little light mist up there, they all come out and they start feeding on that like they're starving, then you could add a little more. But here's what I learned doing that. And when it's a cold day, I don't do it because you could chill them. And that's why I would have concerns if it was wet, super high humidity on a very cold day. That combination is really bad. I definitely wouldn't be adding more moisture to the hive. But on these hot days... Um, I just don't like smoking them. Now, when I was studying at Cornell, uh, there was even in the lesson plan, there was something that said it puts bees off for 24 hours uh, after smoking. Like the impact on the bees, uh, we know that they, they respond as if there's a fire nearby and they consume resources and they cluster together and they actually seek deep, seek deep shelter and they're gonna protect the queen. And so that's, those are their 
priorities. And so I wondered about that and I couldn't get the science behind it. And so I asked lots of questions. So where did they come from and how much smoke did it take and what were the conditions and everything else? I didn't get any answers for it. So we know that smoke is particulate. So we can see it. If we can see it, there's particles. And the particles get into your honey, by the way, and it actually has an impact on the flavor of your honey, among other things. So not only does it stress the bees because they think they have to defend themselves and they have to eat resources that um, you know, might be burned or whatever, but also filling their bodies with liquid helps to make them more protected against high heat, just like people. If you're super dehydrated, you suffer heat exhaustion. If you're super hydrated, then you can handle stresses a lot better. And so they consume their resources. And for those who might be wondering, are they making preparations to leave the hive because there's a forest fire? Uh, we already know, based on what I described earlier, that leaving the hive would be the death of that uh, colony. And that's because the queen can't fly. The queen's too heavy. She's in production. And when there's a forest fire environment, they don't have the ability to get the queen to go on a diet and to start her workout routine so that she can fly away. So instead, they cluster and protect the queen. So that's what they're doing. Now, um, so if it's really hot, the one-to-one uh, -one sugar syrup with, I use one or two teaspoons per quart of Honey Bee Healthy, and uh, there's no specific formula for that. You just want it to smell like that. And here's what I learned. Okay, so we know the bees don't like it when we're inspecting the hive anyway. So we need a reason to be in there to begin with. You better have a good reason. Don't just go in there thinking that they like that you're there because 99.9% of the time they don't. There might be one bee that lands on you and looks at you and you think you have a connection, but they're not happy. So, but what I did learn was I can make the best of a bad situation. I'm tearing open their home. I'm exposing their resources. And I'm also potentially getting down into the brood, which is their most protected area, their most sensitive area that guarantees the longevity of the hive where the new bees are being developed. I found out that by spritzing them with that sugar syrup and the honey bee healthy, um, as soon as they smelled it, they were coming up on the top bars and extending their tongues, much the way they do when they fly near a flower that they know is going to have a nectar source they go ahead and their proboscis flips out even before they land on the flower. But that's because they're coming in downwind of it. They can smell it. They know what they're going to get and they expect to get nectar. So if we spritz it with the honeybee healthy sugar syrup and they've had that experience before, they've associated it with the sugar syrup, the carbohydrate and that scent makes it more identifiable. Sound cool? So that's why I do it. But in a wet climate like Ireland, it would really depend on the heat of the day. The other thing is, I'm not telling you to go out there without a smoker with you. All I'm saying is, maybe you can get away with the sugar syrup and honey bee healthy. And if it turns out to be an unruly colony of bees, that they're hyper defensive, you're going to have to back away and resort to smoke or inspect them on another day. Because if it's a rainy day, heavy overcast day, maybe you're in an area where it's almost always overcast. I don't know. But sunny days put bees in a sunny disposition. So rainy days, stormy days, rainy, stormy dispositions with your bees. So um, the sugar syrup works for me. I like it. It's fun to do. And to see them all coming out, sticking their tongues out is uh, makes us feel better about what we're doing to them. But uh, 
if you really feel that they're overwhelmed with moisture, just it's just enough, by the way, to distract them. We don't want to feed them. That's not the movement. What it is is kind of to, to redirect their attention. Guard bees come up. If they're watching your every move, if you open that hive and they're all doing their business and no, none of the bees are paying attention to you or tracking you, then you're probably in pretty good shape. You can start to move around, but the minute you slip up, drop a frame, smash a bee, or do anything that they don't like even more than the fact that you're in the hive, now you can expect a response. And if you don't have your smoker and if you don't have a squirt bottle handy, you have no way to redirect their attention. It's kind of like an angry toddler pitching a fit. We can't always control or put pressure directly on them. We redirect their attention to something else so they don't trash your entire living room. I'm just making this up. It's not that that actually could happen in real life. Question number nine, Dave from Hillsboro, Oregon. A few episodes back, you showed an audible alarm device. Oh, oh okay. You showed an audible alarm device that you use in your apiary to discourage bears. I plan to move two colonies from my backyard to forest property that I own and try to capture the big leaf maple bloom. Both colonies will be on the same stand. I have purchased two alarm units. The units have 120 degree detection angles. As I thought about it, that may not give enough coverage. I planned to put the units in front and behind the colonies. Now I think maybe I should have a unit on each side as well. So the question is, what do I recommend? And by the way, I have to <clears throat> give a disclaimer on this. This is what I'm using. My electric fence is down and down for good. You should know that you risk bears coming in. But I had the opportunity to talk with our fish and game people and our, our game commission guys that deal with troubled bears and stuff like that. And this is also based on my own experience in videoing bear behavior. And I've had bears get into my apiary in the past. Bears don't like these. Okay. And there are other versions of this. There are cheap ones out and stuff like that. But here's what I shopped based on. The decibel level that these put out. So I went to Amazon. I was looking at these. They're inexpensive. And uh, they're solar powered. Which means uh, this particular one has a, an adapter on the back that you can plug in to charge these batteries. So the batteries are rechargeable. You plug them in and charge them up ahead of time. And uh, I'm just explaining why I chose this particular model. These come with a remote control. I could care less about the remote control. What a waste. I wish they sold this by itself without that little remote control. And the reason is you have total control on off switch in the back and then you pick the mode and it has four modes. Now, one of the reasons I'm showing this as part of my explanation is the solar panel. You have to face that where it's going to get plenty of sun. Now, mine have never run down, and that's because I have them set on night mode only. So I'm only concerned about uh, dusk till dawn coverage. So during the day, these things will be going off all the time because they go off when a rabbit goes through. They go off when a possum walks through. They go off when my chickens are walking through. So during the day, they would run themselves down, I think. So, um, and the reason I bring this up is if you had, you know, a rack with a couple of beehives on it, you know, and the sun's on that side over there, I would put two well behind it. Here's your sensor, your motion sensor. And then I would put two out to the sides on the other side, but kind of angled a little bit divergent from one another. 
And then what I would do is turn them on and do a motion detector test. You be the bear. You know, you come in from all different angles and see if they don't go off. If I have to run out to my bee yard in the middle of the night for some reason, maybe I forgot something out there or whatever, the whole place lights up. All these alarms are going off. So um, the flashing light that comes on, I'm just going to give you an example of that. This, that's, it says it's on one and it gives you kind of a warning before it's armed. So uh, this little flashing light, it does nothing. The bears do not care. Raccoons don't care. Skunks don't care. They ignore that flashing light. Now what that's doing is it's giving me time to get away. So once you arm it and it flashes like that, now it's armed. That's what it sounds like. And then I set mine on the third, which means it would only work at night. And then there's the fourth and you push it again and now it's off. Thank goodness. So that gives you a sample of kind of what it sounds like. Imagine, because I overdo it, I think I have 14 of them out there. Um, and I like to see how close something can get. They don't go off. A mouse comes through. They don't go off. We don't care about that. And I did talk to the Game Commission guys, and I have to be honest with you and say, I was all excited. I was like, because they were talking about problem bears. They wanted to, they want to protect the bears. They don't want people shooting bears, and I agree with that. And I said, yeah, I'm using these noisemakers, and uh, nothing comes near it. And he agreed, that's going to repel bears. He thinks that's good, but here's the thing, they did not like my noisemakers one bit. And so full disclosure, uh, the game commission guy had no sense of humor about it. I couldn't even, you know, get him to chuckle at anything. And uh, he said the impact on local wildlife is also negative when you have something making noise like that. And uh, so I was thinking, oh man, what would you do? So put up an electric fence, which by the way, when the snows and the rains come, that electric fence is worthless. It's stopping nothing. Uh, the bears have already been out. They've been out more than a, a month ago. People were seeing black bears already because we have this weird weather and they come out of hibernation at weird times and they're hungry. Um, so my noisemakers are what I have out there because these things are not impacted by rain. They're not impacted by weeds growing up. They're not impacted by deep snow. They work in all weather, all temps, and uh, they're going to keep bears out. Now here's my logic and why I think, you know, I understand the point of the wildlife control guys that they're actually here to preserve wildlife and manage it. And uh, I could see where, you know, because we've seen those signs at bird nesting sites, especially along the shoreline and things like that, where they don't want any noise, they don't want any visitors, even traffic sounds um, can stress wildlife, especially nesting birds and things like that. But uh, since they only go off when something's actively in my aviary, it's not like they're going off, you know, every 10 minutes as a, a warning, like some of these towers on piers and stuff that go off and they cycle all these noises to keep birds off of them and things like that. It's not like that. They're only activated when there's motion around them. So we get these heavy, windy, stormy nights. Sometimes they go off when there's movement around them that's not even thermal, but this is what I'm using, and I hope I've given you kind of the full picture of the pros and cons of it. If you're going to keep up with it, your electric fence is your best bet, but you have to keep the weeds trimmed off of it. Um, you have, you know, heavy snow, things like that may not work. 
bears, by the way, for putting up an electric fence. For those of you who are brand new and you're just now laying out your apiary. I always think it's funny when somebody puts up an electric fence around an apiary and the fence charger capabilities for like 30 miles of fence. The solar powered fence chargers, I have them, you know. Um, why put your fence right up against your beehives? Expand that out. Give it plenty of room beyond your beehives. If you're going to put up an electric fence, there's nothing that says it has to be right up against your apiary. And the reason I say that is, why have the bear so close to your hives that it's smelling brood, it's smelling everything that it wants in your apiary, and that hunger ramps up the closer it is to the hives, why not arrest his interest well away from the hive? Why not set that fence well out there? It doesn't cost you any more. Once you've bought the charger and stuff like that, uh, it doesn't cost you a lot more to extend the range of it. My charger is a 30 mile charger. And uh, I can change my mind at any time. All my horizontal hives are in a fenced area and I can electrify it in you know two minutes. I can walk out there and turn it on. So if I know that there's something in the area, if there's something trying to climb my fence or something like that out there, I can just turn that on and it's active at any time. But I'd rather not have it running at all if I can get away with it and the noisemakers are what I choose. So. Given the information that I've just explained about my logic behind why it works, and I'd like to not have an electric fence and I have to mow and weed whack around and, and maneuver around and have to caution kids about touching. Instead, I go with the noisemakers, but I do risk my colonies, but no bears have shown an interest, even though, you know, you walk out there different times of the year, you smell the honey in the air. You know your apiary is announcing itself on the wind. So what are the chances that a bear a thousand yards away smells that? Very good. The bears in my area have good memories and they don't want to come to my apiary anymore. So noise annoys bears. It's a great way to go. So that's what I recommend for Dave. Yeah, because these things are portable. You don't, there are portable electric fences. They come on a dolly, you know, and you walk them out there and you drive your grounding post in and you do all the stuff you're supposed to do. Uh, we're putting these up on fiberglass posts only because they already make them for electric fence and they're, they're step-in posts. You know, you go out to wherever you happen to be, push that in the ground, zip tie this on it, you've got an alarm system. So very easy, very inexpensive. And by the way, I haven't worn one of these out yet. I did have one that was a dud. And in what way was it a dud? It constantly alarmed whether something was moving or not. So I had to get rid of that one but on all of these that I've purchased through the years, and I have a bunch of these in reserve too. So the minute one of them goes bad and is no longer alarming, I'm just gonna put another one out there. So that's it, they work great, I like them. If you follow my advice on that, you accept the potential liability and that you might be stressing wildlife somewhere. Question number 10 comes from Shane, Cootstown, PA. I will be a new beekeeper this spring in Eastern PA, and I'm very much looking forward to it. And your content, along with some introductory classes, have helped me prepare. I'm really glad that's exactly why I'm here. My biggest concern is related to population control. My journey toward becoming a beekeeper was motivated by a mix of general interest 
and the belief that keeping bees will be a benefit to my own fruit trees as well as pollination needs for the larger area. I have no financial interest in beekeeping. I'm starting with two colonies and had in mind the idea that I might expand a bit from there, but I'd rather try to keep the number down to four or five. Maybe I'll love it and wind up with 10. I've heard you and others talk a lot about the indicators that a colony is ready to swarm, but it seems that the only course of action there is to either give the bees more space, that's true, expand with supers ahead of the colony becoming too congested, or perform a controlled split, that's also true. If you see them making preparations or they're overly populated, this is a time if you want to expand your apiary to split the colony and its resources to make a new colony and of course get them to make a new queen. And it says, or hope to capture the swarm, which is often what I do too. So you can make the split and have total control or you can count on them if you're using that scion method or the QMP lure method uh, to get them to land on a branch when you're not home and they swarm and you come home and you find them on a branch exactly where you designate it's like magic exactly where you wanted them to be there they are so that can be cool it's not a guarantee but uh, all of those things are are true and ways that your apiary expands so of course i'll adapt to the circumstances as they arise but i plan to run my hives with two deeps for brood starting with one and expanding when that fills and add supers as needed. Nothing I've heard or read so far would suggest to me that uh, two deeps. It's certainly enough space and I understand that the colony will have a natural desire to reproduce itself. Actually, see, it's not this. See, here's the problem with wanting to control swarms you can do all the things you're supposed to do. And this is not good news for people because I understand, you know, you want to keep bees and you want absolute answers because you want absolute control over the bees you have and you want them to behave in a way that you've been told that they're going to. And that's both the frustration and the beauty of beekeeping. They surprise us at every turn. And they don't do things that we expect them to and they often do things that we never thought of. So there's always one renegade colony of bees that just does whatever they want. For example, I have a colony of bees that only has 12 medium frames. No deep frames, 12 medium frames. They filled it wall to wall. They're definitely going to swarm, I would have told anyone. They're wall to wall bees. When it comes to nighttime, uh, when the foragers are all back and everything, you could not see the frames for all the bees that are in that hive. It just happens to be an observation hive. And I often refer to my observation hives as swarm generating machines. And that's because we can't expand them. They're not that big. So, uh, but that colony never swarmed all year long. All they did was max out their resources. They had a heavy population of bees and they're still going strong right now and they never swarmed once. So there's an example of them having all the reasons that we could think of to swarm. They had limited space, so that would be a swarm stimulant. They had a high population of bees, swarm stimulant. They had maximized resources to the point of almost being honey bound, swarm stimulant. They also had resources coming in from the outdoors. The environment was great. The 
you know, nectar and pollen resources are fantastic. There were drones everywhere. All the key ingredients to cause a swarm existed and they didn't. Now let's go to my number one of the three observation hives. It had more space than that one had. It was only filling two thirds of the available space. They didn't even finish drawing out all of their comb. And uh, what did they do? They swarmed. So they had room, they had, you know, they weren't heavily loaded with bees. They had uh, lots of reasons to stick around and not leave that cavity, but they did anyway. And what I'm saying is you can't stop the bees from swarming and likewise you can't make them swarm if they just don't feel like it they just don't want to it is natural for them to swarm and uh keeping that count static good luck with it i only want 10 colonies myself i can't say that i'm complaining that i have 20 um because it gives me more opportunity to learn more and use different types of beehives and the more colonies I have, the more hives I can have, the more comparisons I can make. And so it goes. And uh, I just don't want to have, you know, a hundred beehives. But uh, that's why I'm saying that good luck with your desire to keep them down, but you could. So those are the things you would do. Expand ahead of them before they filled all their frames and uh, double deeps. That's a big hive. I had double deeps. Uh, I made a monster colony one year and it had three or four supers on it beyond the double deeps. And uh, they really were monsters. They went after the other colonies. They robbed everything. They were a pain to get into because they defended themselves really well. And uh, they produced a lot of honey and they did not winter well. So my smaller colonies were much more versatile much healthier overall, fewer um, varroa destructor mites in the smaller colonies. And we can attribute that to the fact that they do have a turnover. So um, maybe if you have somebody else that would like to start with bees and they want one of your swarms or something like that, or you can help them, you can make a split and give them your queen. And then with the promise that if your colony does not make a replacement queen, that you can get a frame of eggs and brood back from them in a couple of weeks if there's no evidence that your bees are making a replacement. You always need insurance policies and that's what my nucleus hives are for. Insurance resource hives in case I lose a queen or something like that. But uh, hope I answered that question. Question number 11 comes from Troy, Lebanon, Pennsylvania. Will flow hives fit in the hive butler? Would have multiple uses. Most of all, safe storage of frames. I can answer that easily. No. So I store my flow frames. They don't fit the, the hive butler and that's because the frame slats on the hive butler are designed for the standard Langstroth frames, deep, medium, or shallow, but they don't accommodate the width of the um, flow super frames. So what I do with those anyway is I pull all my flow supers off during the winter time and uh, we get them cleaned up and I use the supers themselves as my storage for the frames. So they don't go in the hive butlers anyway. I uh, can see where you might want to use them for transport or something, I don't know, or for maybe for washing them up, steam, you know, for power washing them or something. If we had a rack to put them on, that would be helpful, but uh, they don't fit Hive Butler totes. Next one's from Elizabeth, uh, St. Simons Island, Georgia. Considering putting up a hive near a rescue horse farm. 
Biggest concern is whether a swarm could get near horses that would disturb bees and be stung. Do you think the swarm would avoid the horses or is this a risk? Okay, so for Elizabeth, um, rescue horse operations means a lot of different things. Like we have um, equine therapy uh, horse ranches around here. And the very first thing that I would do if I was thinking about keeping bees, I would be in conversation with the people that own and manage those horses. I would tell them what you plan to do, where you plan to put your bees. I would make sure that everyone knows what's going on. Any place where horses are in their stalls or in areas where they can't escape, those are bad news for horses if they're in close proximity to bees and if something happens that the bees get really excited. If we're talking a thousand yards away, something like that, it's probably not that big a deal, but don't surprise horse owners. See, I have horse owners a thousand yards from me. And uh, we're friends and we know each other. And if my bees were ever going to cause a problem with their horses, I would want to know about it. But horses that can run across a field that uh, have access to the pasture and things like that, uh, you don't ever want them right next to your bees. Even uh, Langstroth has a whole chapter, uh, not a chapter maybe, but a couple of paragraphs about not having sweaty horses near your beehives. So um, you don't want them to be trapped. That's why I no longer have fainting goats, by the way. Fainting goats, if they get stung, what do they do? They faint, they're right there. And they can't run away. So they just topple over and then what do the bees do? They sting them. So you can't have fainting goats near beehives because a bee lands on them and they panic and fall over. They don't, don't even get stung and they're just laying on their side with their little legs poking out and they're still eating grass while they're laying there because they have myotonia. But so you have to consider livestock. It's very important and uh, the livestock cannot be enclosed or trapped or kept somewhere where they can't run away if uh, bees did get a little defensive around them. So that's it for today and now we're on to the fluff section. And a couple of things I want to talk about. Uh, there's a new book I want to talk about but here's the thing. I recommend uh, these guides which come from Penn State and it's honeybees and their maladies. This is the original one and I recommended it not too long ago because it's a field guide. If you're a brand new beekeeper, if you want to know what you're looking at, there are pictures and explanations throughout the guide. But then where was I? In West Virginia at their conference. Who do I run into? Who do you think? The person who revised this book is Dr. Robin Underwood, and now we have this version. So it's been updated. Now, if you already have this one, am I telling you to chuck it and buy the new one? And by the way, you're supporting Penn State University if you buy these, this isn't a commercial operation. But I just wanted to let you know that there's a new revision out of Honeybees and Their Maladies, and it's a field guide. These are hugely beneficial, and if I were teaching a beginner bee class, which I'm not, but if I were, this would be one of the mandatory handouts for my students. Everyone would have one of those. If you're getting into beekeeping and you're gonna look at things on your own and uh, you wanna know what's going on, that is a great resource. Okay, and the last thing I wanna talk about too is, look at this book. I like to talk about books by Tom Seeley and a lot of others, and this is by Kim Flottam. Okay, and Kim's been around a long time. I didn't even realize this. Back in 2006 and 2007, I took a bee course at a local nature center and they handed out a little booklet called Beginning with Bees. So it was a paperback book. 
Who is the author? Kim Flottam. So the reason that this book caught my attention is look at the title. It is Common Sense Natural Beekeeping. Sustainable bee-friendly techniques to help your hives survive and thrive. Fred, did he give you that book to talk about it? Nope, I bought it. I bought it on Amazon. Full of pictures. And I got all excited about some of these pictures, by the way. Because I was at that uh, conference this weekend and I noticed the exact same pictures go up during someone's presentation. I thought, what? Somebody stole a picture. But then I get to the back and I look at the picture credits and it's from iStock or PhotoStock. So these are stock B images in here, but why would this book be useful to anyone? Here's who it's useful for. If you're thinking about beginner beekeeping, okay, and this is the year that you're gonna, you're gonna pull the trigger, you're gonna buy hives and you're gonna get set up. What I like about this book, and I'm gonna put a link down in the video description to it, it covers all the different hive configurations and the positives and negatives or the bonus factor of each one how they originated, what, what they do for the bees, and how the bees use those spaces. So we all know, here's the thing, that's frustrating new people, and it's when somebody walks out and there's a brand new beekeeping class, they go, ask five beekeepers, get 10 answers, or whatever. Um, the thing of it is, those 10 answers could all work. So that's the part I want people to understand. Um, it's not like you say, well, I'm going to keep Langstroth hives, and I'm going to put bees in Langstroth hives, and because that's what works. And then somebody else says, well, they use top bar hives. And you go, oh, no, no, those, those are no good. The Langstroth hive is the way to go. The thing is, you don't have to have that division at all. But if you want to understand objectively, what are the differences in these hives? And would it be a hive even that you could keep in your state, in your region? You know, what works best? This book, the more I read it and uh, the paragraph after paragraph, he phrased things, and this book just came out, thank goodness, because it almost looks like um, the things I say came out of that book. Because the stuff I'm recommending over and over in my practices uh, are cycled in that book again, which makes me like it even more. So I haven't left my review yet on that because I just got it, just finished it so I could talk about it today. And I highly recommend this book. So if you were thinking and you haven't committed yet it's kind of like in photography a lot of you won't care about this but um, there are you know main brands of cameras there's Sony and there's Canon and there's you know Mamaya and Yashica and all the stuff nobody's ever heard of and Hasselblad and then of course there's Nikon which you know the best photographers carry but anyway what happens is um, you start to pick lenses and when you're buying lenses, you become committed to a brand because that's where you just became invested. The more lenses you buy, the more you're going to stick with that one. And you always hope that everything that anyone ever says about photographic equipment, that they finish it off with, and this one's the best one. And then you also hope that when they say that's the best one, it's the one you have. So when it comes to beehives, there is no best hive. There isn't. Because something that you may really want, oh, this is good. This just happens to be open right here. You know what kind of hive that is? It's a Layens hive. Shout out to Bearsville Bees. That was at uh, the West Virginia Conference. They make Layens hives and they make them really well. And uh, whatever hive you start with, if you start with Layens hives, that's a very unique frame size, you see. 
So it's kind of like picking that lens. You're going to kind of stick with it then because your gear needs to match. So then you probably use other horizontal hives. I have two lens hives. Why do I have two? Because one got too big and too populated and I needed to move frames out of it into another one. And the only hive design that could take that's another lens. So do I say lens is the best? No. Is it the worst? No. Is it better than Langstroth? No. How about the long line? Nope. Just better for you in what you want to do. So this book will help you make that decision. Now I know somebody's sitting there getting frustrated. Fred, what about the drawing? Who won? Okay. We're going to cut away. I want to thank you for being here. Those of you who want to see who won the contest for the 200th episode of Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers, you're going to have to watch after the credits and my grandson, Quinn, is going to pick them and remain completely objective. We have seven winners. He's going to read them, continue watching, and if you miss your name and you think you're the winner, look down in the video description and see if your name is down there. So I want to thank you for being here today. Thank you for listening for more than 200 episodes, some of you. So many people said they've seen every episode. That's 201 weekends of talking about bees. So, and that's not all the episodes that are on my website, of course, is over 900 videos on my YouTube channel. And some people are often asking, how do I find a specific topic that you've covered? Great question. You go to my YouTube channel, which is Frederick Dunn. And if you look at the homepage, you look to the right, you see that little, little magnifying glass, that little search line up there. And you might type in uh, walkaway splits or installing queens or installing packages. And then you hit the little enter button after you've typed that. And guess what? The videos that I've made, no matter how long ago they might be, will hopefully show up and then you get to pick one of those. So you don't have to search through all 900 searches built into it. And it's also based on the text that goes with it. So without talking forever. Oh, and the other thing is what happens if you didn't win um, those 200th episode water bottles, coffee cups, coffee cup the most popular, um, and stickers are available until next weekend and then those listings go away so i want to thank you for watching thank you for supporting my channel and uh, i hope that you continue to learn something useful about beekeeping right here and don't forget bees are above average going to do a drawing today and we have a bag with all of the entries in it and we have our impartial drawer and what's your name uh, Quinn and Quinn why are you the drawer today um, to show you how good I am to show you how good you are and you can read names yes is that right you're yes. pretty confident mm -hmm. how old are you um, uh, seven you almost said one Okay, you're seven, and oh, do you have any favorites in this bag of entries? Um, Fred. See, you're not supposed to have favorites. 
Do you have a favorite in that bag? Um, yes. No, you can't have a favorite. We have to be impartial. No. Okay, so here's what we're gonna do. You're gonna take this bag right here, pick it up, dump all those out on the floor at your feet. Okay. Now pick them all up and put them back in the bag. Stuff them all in the bag. Do it. Just lay it on its side and sweep them in here. There you go. That's how we're mixing them up. Hurry. Put a bunch in there. Collect them all. Who folded these up? Um, me and my grandfather. You and your grandfather? Is your grandfather awesome? Um, yes. You know he is. What about that hat you're wearing? This got bees all over it. You like honeybees? Um, yes. What do you think about them? Good. They're they're good and they make um, honey for you and, they, and honey never expires. Okay, that's a really good answer. How many of these people are going to be winners today? Um, six. Six people. of them. Um, how many entries did we get? Um, one, one untillion. One untillion. You're right. And they're from all over the world. Really yep. cool. England, Canada, Australia. USA. USA, of course. Keep it going, keep it going. Hurry, get them in there. Stop them, hurry. Let's go. Pick it up. People want to see who the winners are. That's some pretty good mixing up that you're doing right there. We want to keep it fair, and you know how to read, so that's going to be great. We're going to read their first names. Let's get those in there. Now let's put the bag on your lap. There you go. Let's close our eyes. And stick your hand in there and grab, stick, stick your hand way deep in there and get one. Don't even grab one off the top. There you go, just, just get one. <clears throat> That's okay. Open that one and read the first name. And we're not gonna do any editing. No funny business. Okay, open it up, what do you see? First name only. Bobby. Bobby, let me see that. It's a girl. So Bobby, B-O-B-I from Montpelier. Okay, go ahead and let's grab another. Stick your hand way in there, shake them up. Close your eyes, pull it out. Okay, first name on that one. Don't worry about it. Jaina? Let's see it. We won't show it. It is Janie from, oh, left out the state. Oh no, Janie left off the email, the state, the country. Yeah. Disqualified. Grab another one. Okay, so. Oh, wait, I can do that. I can grab those. Just reach in and grab it. There you go. First name Um, Bill. Bill, let's see it. There we go, so we're talking Bill from Holbert, Oklahoma. That's two winners. Okay, grab another. And if your name is called out, you'll be notified through email. That's why it was important to put the email address in there and fill out the rest of the information. First name. Pam. Sit there, don't hand it to me. Pam. Pam, okay. And that's Pam from La Crosse, Wisconsin. Cool, so that's three down, three to go. That looks like one you folded up, mister. Oh, yeah. What's the first name? Um, 
Jakey? Could it be Jackie, maybe? Oh, Jackie. Jackie from College oh. Station, Texas. Good oh, job. Right. One, two, three, that's four. We get two more. Marcel, M-A-R-C-E-L, from Pomfret, Connecticut. Cool! And one more, this is the final one. Joni. Let's see it. We have Johnny oh, from Carrollton, Georgia. All right, you know what? Let's grab one final bonus one. Let's go seven, that's a lucky number. Let's do that. Makes it all seven, so. Okay, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, makes seven, There you go, this is the final one. Three, one, three. Here we go. Bruce from Newport, Vermont, that's it. Well, thanks, Quinn. Do you have anything to say to everybody before we close out? Um, Happy beekeeping. I, 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 I hope you are one of the winners if you watch this. And happy have, beekeeping for this have, year. Uh, have a good time. Thank you. Thanks, Quinn. You did a great job. Yay.